Hello and welcome to this discussion on peace and the pandemic, um, which has been organised by LSC Ideas. My name is Mary Martin. Um, I'm a senior research fellow at LSC Ideas and I'm the director of the UN Business and Human Security Initiative. Thank you to all of you for joining me today. Uh, we span three time zones, I think, just with our speakers. Um, so good evening to New Zealand, late good evening. Uh, good morning in Barcelona and also here in the UK, one hour behind. I think it's fair to say that um, an unusual, uh, it's an unusual time for any of us um, to participate in public events like this. They're normally held at LSE, as probably many of you know, in the early evening. Um, but um, we are all becoming obviously very good at adapting to more fluid schedules. And perhaps adaptability is the subtext, could be the subtext for our discussion today. Um, how should we understand threats to peace and stability in the age of COVID-19? Um, and how should we devise um, new responses to that challenge, and particularly the challenges that are faced by fragile and conflict-affected countries? which may have been, these threats may have been altered and magnified by the health emergency. So that's the nub of our discussion. Um, the event is part of the LSE series on COVID-19, the policy response. Um, it is being recorded and will be available as a podcast on the LSE events webpage. If you want to ask a question, um, please do so at any time during the discussion. Um, you can do it via the Q&A function at the bottom of your Zoom screen. And please tell us your name and your affiliation. And I'll try and get in as many uh, questions as possible, both throughout the course of the discussion with our speakers. Um, but also, obviously, there'll be time uh, um, dedicated for Q&A at the end. And it really helps if you can make your um, intervention short so we can cover as many comments and uh, questions as possible. If you want to tweet, the hashtag is LSECOVID19, that's all one word. And we're also streaming live on Facebook and you can ask questions there. So let me begin, get underway by introducing our speakers. Um, first, Helen Clark um, is a former New Zealand Prime Minister and a former United Nations Development Programme Administrator. She currently chairs the boards of the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative and the Partnership for Maternal, Newborn and Child Health. She's a frequent contributor to discussions on issues related to sustainable development, the Sustainable Development Goals and women's leadership. Um, hello, Helen in New Zealand. Uh, Marika Shomaras is a recently appointed Vice President of the Busara Centre for Behavioural Economics in Nairobi. Uh, prior to that, she was the Director of Programme Politics and Governance and the Research Director of the Secure Livelihoods Research Consortium at the Overseas Development Institute in London. Welcome, Marika. Great, thanks for having me. Thank you. And Helena Puchlarari is co-founder and director of Build Up, uh, a non-profit organization that works to identify and apply innovative, 
practices to prevent conflict and tackle polarization. She has extensive experience advising and supporting UN agencies, multilateral organizations and NGOs working in conflict and fragile contexts. And she specializes in the integration of digital technology and innovation processes to peace processes. And she's going to be talking particularly on those kind of themes. Thank you for joining us, Elena. Thank you for having me. Um, so just to kick off um, uh, before we hear from the, the speakers themselves, uh, we all know that coronavirus is more than just a public health emergency. It has implications for every area of society and it creates this dualism that we've become used to hearing about lives and livelihoods, threats to both. Um, but also affecting education, environment, culture, and with the potential to, to deepen social divisions and inequalities. Um, we're starting to see some of those effects um, across the globe. Um, but what effects particularly are there in parts of the world which are already fragile with weak governance systems? And what kinds of risks does the pandemic pose um, for peace and security? And where and how can we best address um, these kind of risks? And to explore this, we're going to attempt a, a sort of multi-level analysis, as well as recognizing that different policy domains contribute to stability and development with security and achieving those. So we can think of peace and also peace building in terms of action clearly at the global level and interventions by international um, organizations, institutions, as well as global civil society. And we can also view it uh, from the standpoint of national politics and policies, and certainly the national, not to say the nationalist perspective um, has perhaps dominated um, how coronavirus as a health crisis has been handled so far. Um, will the same perspective apply in addressing the security challenges of the pandemic? And not least, peace and peace building are locally situated phenomena. So how should we see the challenges of COVID-19 for grassroots security and what kind of novel uh, peace building strategies and practices uh, might be useful to counter the impact of the pandemic? In, in communities. So let me um, turn over to our speakers. Uh, perhaps Helen, could you start us off with some thoughts looking at international and national policy opportunities um, of how this pandemic um, challenges peace and security and what we might do about it? Well, thanks and thanks for inviting me to participate in the, in the panel. Uh, I start from the assumption that this pandemic is posing very grave risks to peace and security. So I want to outline a little why I think that and what I think might be able to be done. Uh, as you've said in introducing us, Mary, the pandemic is an all-encompassing crisis. It begins as a health crisis. It becomes a full-blown economic and social crisis. And in efforts to uh, address it, uh, to stop it spreading, a significant part of the world's population has been subjected to uh, lockdowns. 
That has had a very serious effect on jobs and on livelihoods. The ILO estimated, I think back in April, that around half the jobs in the informal sector uh, were at risk, uh, and then estimated a, a decline in the number of hours worked of around 10.5% in the formal economy, which is equivalent to a, a loss of around 300 million or more full-time jobs. Uh, out of this, we're likely to see a growth in extreme poverty in our world for the very first time uh, this century. And the, the numbers who would fall back into extreme poverty are varying very widely. The World Bank initially came in with an estimate of 40 to 60 million. Uh, then the UN University uh, published uh, research with contributions, uh, in, including from uh, King's College London, suggesting it could be upwards of 420 million. That's a huge range, but for sure, more will fall back into extreme poverty. Uh, we have had the World uh, Food Programme Chief, uh, David Beasley, go to the Security Council uh, to say to them that uh, WFP estimates a famine of near biblical proportions because the numbers living on the brink of starvation uh, would more or less double from before uh, COVID-19 numbers uh, to uh, the height of the, of the pandemic numbers. Uh, now, at the nation state level, in, in reaction to uh, this, this crisis, by uh, late last month, more than 100 countries had applied to the International Monetary Fund for emergency support, which it doesn't have the funding to give. Uh, when economies stall during lockdowns, of course, so do revenues for governments, as well as the jobs and the livelihoods. And many governments, without the emergency support that's being requested, will be left unable to service their debts and unable to sustain their spending on the most basic services that people rely on. So having painted that picture, I say put it all together. In other circumstances, where you have a sudden and steep rise in extreme poverty, in joblessness, in hunger, in out-of-school children, in decline in basic services, is this not a recipe for turbulence and upheaval? Social co cohesion is strained beyond its limits. You can see a collapse in law and order. You can see a very repressive response to that. And I think we're all aware that uh, among a range of authoritarian regimes around the world, they've taken the attitude of don't miss a good crisis to crack down further on people who they considered a, a, a pest or a menace or a threat to their perpetuation in power. Now, internal upheaving, upheavals, uprisings, repression, all of this can have spillover effects that go beyond the nations immediately affected uh, through to the neighbours, uh, through migration, flight, uh, forced displacement. And I think uh, in painting a picture of that, I would say look to the collapse of Venezuela, which was happening pre-COVID, and the examples of, of what an economic collapse can then precipitate uh, through the, the broader region with the, the flight of, of desperate people uh, uh, seeking uh, something better for themselves and for their, their families. The, the whole subcontinent has, has felt the impact of that. So you, you would think that the prospects of such a scenario, dire as it is, might globalize global action, but actually hasn't. I, I make one exception to that. I think it is fantastic that the European Union led 
on mobilizing resources for a health response, uh, basically around the agenda uh, set out by the Global Pandemic Monitoring Board to mobilize funding for a development of, of diagnostics, therapeutics, and, and vaccines. A useful $8 billion amount of money. And Gavi also had a very successful funding round, and that will be relevant at the point if and when we, we get a vaccine. But frankly, $8 billion is the petty cash in terms of what is required here to try to stop states falling over under these uh, severe uh, pressures. And I'll come back to the sum of money that we're talking about in, in a moment. So who is failing here? Well, number one, the UN Security Council. Think back to Ebola. 2014, the Security Council, September that year, passed a resolution. It declared Ebola a threat to global peace and security, and it called on all member states to do whatever they could to step up to fight that threat. We have had no such resolution from the UN Security Council. Actually, the UN Secretary General could confront this. He could invoke Article 99 of the Charter, which was put there for a purpose and has never been used, but if not now, when? Uh, that article enables the Secretary General to bring to the attention of the UN Security Council any matter which, in his opinion, his or her opinion, may threaten international peace and security. Now, the Secretary General, to his credit, has called for a global ceasefire, saying all warring parties stop fighting and focus on fighting the epidemic uh, together, the pandemic together. Uh, when the Security Council was called on to pass a resolution supporting his call, it has been unable to do so. It failed at an attempt that got right through to a, a no objection basis. Somebody objected, and there's many reasons for that that we could go into. But frankly, this is pathetic to see missing in action the world's peak global peace and security body in what is undoubtedly the greatest crisis of the lifetimes of, of most of us. And uh, it, of course, reflects uh, the tremendous polarization between great powers at the moment, which in itself is a threat to global peace and security, uh, exacerbated, I would say, by the war of words between two of them over, over COVID-19. Uh, if anything should spur calls for reform of the global peace and security architecture, it is this. Because these days, uh, the threat uh, to global peace and security, which the Security Council was set up to counter, which was that of another world war, that's not what we're talking about. It has to move with the times and recognize, as it did in 2014, that a pandemic is a threat to global peace and security, and it shouldn't be missing in action. Now, also missing in action uh, is the G20. Cast your minds back to 2009 and the global financial crisis. Full credit to Prime Minister Gordon Brown of the United Kingdom, who rallied the troops, the other leaders at the G20, for the trillion dollar package to stop economies going over the cliff uh, at the height of the, the GFC. Now, we're not talking a trillion dollars now. The IMF says that $2.5 trillion is needed to support emerging market and developing economies through this crisis. So far, it has been able to mobilize nothing like that. Countries need debt waivers. They need fiscal space created, which goes beyond 
comfort zones. Look, my country's now got a fiscal deficit beyond its its comfort zone. So is the UK. So is Spain. So is so is every developed country. We're bankable. I'm talking about economies that may not be bankable at all. And if the international financial institutions can't uh, play their part, uh, you know, we're in very very uh, serious trouble. The G20 leaders, representing 85% of the global GDP, are the ones who must mobilise uh, this package. Now, let, let me come to a conclusion here. The risk is, if the world blunders on like this, we face not only a very deep recession, we face a global depression, we face the prospect of large-scale unrest, met by repression, human rights abuses, forced displacement, everything added up to uh, global peace and security crisis. Uh, the one thing I would put on the table at this point where I would urge leadership is I think the UNSG, uh, the Director General of the WHO and the heads of the IMF and the World Bank should stand up now and say we're forming a standing uh, pandemic emergency coordination council and each of us is going to use our convening power to bring people together for a truly global response uh, to this. The Secretary General speaks to heads of state and government, the WHO to health ministers, and very importantly, the IMF to finance ministers and the World Bank to finance and international development ministers. If you could get all those constituencies mobilized, you've got a chance of a global response. But at the moment, I, I don't I don't see it and, and I think it's cause for very great concern. Thank you, Helen. And and so you see the kind of the almost the ground zero coming up as as the financial and economic um, areas of action. That that's where we really have to address all the kind of risks that you've outlined. Yes, uh, I, I was tempted to say uh, that uh, in this case, for me, the first step in peace and peace building will be very large dollops of cash for the international financial institutions to, to play their part. And, you know, you go back to April, I, I worked with Gordon Brown and other leaders on a, a letter to the G20 setting out an agenda. And then in May, when <laughs> there wasn't a response, we thought we'll set it out again. And we set it out in you know quite stark terms of, what we were seeing, the internet, the figures coming in about the projections of what could happen. Uh, still a deep silence, although I think the, you know, there are obviously elements in the G20 uh, nations who, who would like to do something, but you're left thinking, you know, I like to be an optimist, but I'm a very worried optimist. Mm -hmm. I, I think that uh, if we don't see an expression of global solidarity around stopping uh, the, the prospect of emerging and developing economies going over the cliff because they simply cannot access uh, finance to keep things going, then we have a worst case scenario. And of course, for the fragile and conflict affected states with weak governments, it's particularly precarious time. But here I am in, in the South Pacific, I am aware of a number of the close island neighbors of New Zealand the Samoas, Fiji's, Cook Islands, Nui, Vanuatu, to whom tourism is incredibly important. In the Caribbean, tourism-dependent economies have got to upper-middle-income status, some to point of, of graduation, including in the Pacific. Their economies are ruined. 
so it, it's not just in those we see as traditionally the most most fragile that this is hitting very very hard uh, it's in those who've, who've done you know rather well with services economies and face no business mm-hmm. Thank you. And I think it's really interesting to uh, to go back to the, you mentioned the response to the Ebola crisis, because obviously we're told the whole time, we, we understand this is unprecedented, some of the figures you were quoting on, on extreme poverty and, and so on. We've never seen these levels before. And yet, you know, there is, there is, I was always taught there was nothing new under the sun. You always have some lessons that you could draw on. And I think that was one from the Ebola crisis that certainly would would have been a good precedent to follow. Um, But let me turn to Marika Chimeras because Marika, I mean, you you see things, you see perhaps risks in a a particular way. What does the idea of of the risk um, calculus look like from your perspective? And and maybe you want to, I don't know, would you take issue also with Helen's point about actually what we need is money at the moment and, and large dollars of cash. But over to you, tell us your thoughts. Thank you so much, Mary. I don't, uh, I don't take issue with the, the point that we need money, but I think a crucial point is where does the money go? How is it received and what happens? And I guess that's, that's where my starting point is. So we go to a very, very different level, which is very much how does this experience of COVID is received on the you know at the very end of this chain of how this money is dispersed and and I'm really struck by some parallels here because I think one one thing that we've seen for years and years and years is that environments of fragility and conflict are imagined through quite a limited set of imaginations the kind of the mental models with which we understand what it means to be in a fragile or conflict infected environment has not changed very much and I think this is a really important moment because I see some parallels here between the pandemic and what maybe the pandemic could invite us to do. So in history, pandemics have really have completely changed frameworks of interpretation. So we know that, you know, we only have public health because we have the bubonic plates. We only have vaccinations because we have smallpox. It has completely changed how people understood a condition. It's, you know, pandemics are often called the, the transitory moment from the Middle Ages to modernity because it was a moment when the nature of disease was completely understood in different ways. It moved from thinking, well, you can understand disease by reading ancient texts or only by observing a patient or by balancing the fluids in the body to understanding that there could be an outside factor such as bacteria or virus. And I kind of want to invite us to say, well, actually, could this also be a moment to change our understanding of what conflict and fragility means, to develop a really new framework of how we understand this and to take seriously what previous frameworks like the human security framework and so on have all have invited us to do already, which is to say, how are these dynamics, these events experienced at the very local, at the grassroots, whatever word you want to choose level, or I would go as far as to say as to the individual level. And I'm going to make three points, which I base on kind of two sets of research, which I, I can elaborate on them empirically a bit later during the conversation if we have time. But um, at the Secure Life Years Research Consortium, we've conducted research on populations and conflict affected uh, areas in eight countries over the past 10 years. And we looked at their livelihood shocks, what happens to people coming out of conflict, how did they recover, what the experiences were, what were the challenges, how did they relate to their governments. And then we're conducting at the Busara Center alongside many COVID related projects, some research on the kind of impact of social distancing policies on economics and emotions in places, as Helen said, where where social distancing isn't really possible. So 
So I want to give like two points that I think could be this possible new framework of understanding conflict and fragility. And this is important also because in many ways we often still talk about conflict and fragile contexts as if they're development challenging challenges, but just a little bit worse. And I think we see from our research time and again that actually they have a specific quality that is very different and that also makes it much, much harder to come out of a situation to recover from conflict. And I would argue this is, is a really important um, insight for the current situation. So there's three points that I want to make. The first one is that both COVID and conflict are often imagined as this kind of almost an equalizing, overpowering experience. We often look at both COVID and conflict as if everyone has essentially the same experience of this or by extension that the impact that people feel will be primarily, will primarily come from either conflict or we now think COVID. And what's really interesting in our research, and it was very surprising to find this after so many years of, of working in countries affected by conflict, that actually often conflict is not the most important shock that happens to people. And I think it was a surprising finding. We often get challenged on it, but I think it's a very good reminder right now, which, which links to points made already that not everyone, first of all, will be affected by COVID in the same way. We know that that's medically possible, but actually also socially, from a social science um, perspective, that's also true. Not everyone will experience this pandemic in the same way. And actually for many people, the trickle down effect of some of the points that Alan make might, might come through the pandemic, but actually for many people in many people's lives, the pandemic might not be the biggest shock they experience. That is one of the qualities of a fragile environment. You can't pinpoint it to one particular cause in a way. Which takes me to my, my second point. Both COVID and in many ways also violent conflict are often kind of imagined as these almost standalone, non-changeable issues. You talk, we talk about conflict all the time as having to identify the root cause. And once that root cause is clearly identified, it can kind of be addressed and then eradicated. And the imagination is kind of almost medical in the sense that that's how we imagine the virus, right? Once the virus is, is overcome, then all of these issues that we now see emergence are, are gone. And of course, what we know about conflict as well is there isn't such a thing as one root cause. On the contrary, root causes change all the time. And the reason why they are somewhat invisible to us is because we don't, we can't take that changeability into account enough. And in many ways, we don't take seriously enough that the reason why what people perceive to be the root cause changes is rooted in emotions, rooted in people's perceptions, is, is how people experience the around them, which of course, perceptions change all the time. Again, one of the interesting findings that we had from the SLRC was that even in places where the conflict situation had abated and where life has clearly, clearly become better, even in those situations, people's perception of life getting better wasn't improving. So actually there's kind of a specific quality to the fragile environment that makes it very, very difficult to experience it as getting better. This is important because perceptions link to what you think is possible and it links to hope, it links to expectations. And we see that in some of the research with the Busara Center that we've conducted in, in Kibera, which is the largest informal settlement in, in Africa and Nairobi. And in Kibera, we see, first of all, quite shocking expectations of physical violence. So people are clearly in the mindset that this is going to be bad. This is linked to a complete lack of optimism. So people really don't have much hope. Half the people we ask have no hope or very little hope that there's an improvement in the next month. So all of a sudden you're creating this spiral of 
horrible expectations, a mindset that, that doesn't see a way out. And we know that these can be really damaging dynamics. And the first one is, the, sorry, the third point I want to make is that both conflict and I would argue also COVID are imagined as if they need to be addressed by urgent and time-bound responses and that these responses will be effective. And this is kind of a pointer towards a lot of projects, peace building, development, etc., which seem to have a clear starting point and they want to arrive at a clear end point and they want there to be a measurable effect. And obviously with COVID, this imagination is kind of enhanced because in the medical realm, this is always easier to imagine that you end up with you know, the vaccine and then it will be over. And once we have this kind of effective response, then things, things will change. We know for a fact that, of course, this is not how these situations pan out. The effects that Helen has just described will go on for years and maybe decades to come. And nonetheless, there is a repetition of this idea that you can almost kind of projecticize these responses. In many ways, I experienced the COVID pandemic as a projecticized response, rather than look, taking a, a broad overview of what, what are long-term relationships that need to be built to establish the kind of trust and collaboration that Helen said at the moment does not exist. What are, what are some of the relationships that need to be changed between international donor governments and fragile countries? What are, what are the power dynamics there that have been recognized as problematic for years? And yet, nonetheless, there's a repetition of the same kind of approach that looks at this projecticized, outcome-driven, measurable results relationship on these issues that we know are so changeable, are so also emotional and so complex that it seems almost incredible that some of these approaches prevail. So those are some of the points that I wanted to make of how we might want to think about this. And, and yes, I wonder whether a rethinking of this idea that you know, people have very individualized experiences of both conflict and the pandemic. People have very, very um, shiftable perceptions of what the causes are for in their lives and how they can act on these. And moving away from this idea that there will be a one kind of projecticized approach that can address this. I wonder if there's a possibility at the moment to shift our understanding of conflict affected and fragile environments and almost let that be the new modernity that we know pandemics can bring into our frameworks of thinking. How exactly we might do that, I can talk about a bit more later. Thank you. Thank you, Marika. Yeah, we um, we should come back because I know you've got some some interesting um, sort of empirical um, backup for that. Um, it's a big ask, isn't it? This this transformation when you know, historically it seems that that things often are quite quite slow to move, despite the fact that the crisis itself, as you say, is having very very uh, rapidly changing effects on people. Um, but um, I think that idea of, of you have to somehow factor in personal experiences. It's a difficult thing for national and international policy, which is often so top down to kind of factor in. It's even a difficult idea sometimes in the social sciences, isn't it? Because we're told that, you know, perceptions are kind of fleeting and not not reliable but um yet that's that's an element that that needs to be captured i was also struck by what you were saying about relationships because you can also see this in in, in a relationship sense what is the, the what are the current relationships at different levels of course between global national and 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 local 
but um, you know our institutions rely on, on on strong relationships and maybe they need to be to be rethought. Let me turn to Helena um, because I think Helena, your starting point might be in fact the the everyday and how security can be both compromised for individuals um, and particularly um, through the intervention of technology. So I, I think you might be able to give us that sort of um, grassroots kind of perspective, but let us know. Well, I'll try my best. I, I really appreciate the global framing that Helen provided and, and also the way that Marika linked at the end to the effect of the pandemic on trust. Um, so as you're saying, Mary, I am going to zoom in on one particular aspect of the pandemic's effect on conflict, um, because at BuildUp we're especially concerned with divisions that emerge as a result of digital technologies. And we're paying attention to two in particular as they're linked to the pandemic. One is the increasing polarization of online conversation. And the second is the growing control exer exerted through online surveillance. That's not to say that there aren't other risks at the grassroots and that there could be other perspectives, um, just that this is what I work on and, and what I know most about. So let me just say a little bit about each of these risks, um, and then I'm going to touch very briefly on a couple of things that we're doing at BuildUp and that could be done to address their effect on trust. Um, so we've been monitoring how online conversations increase divisions and shape identities in ways that fuel conflict. Uh, and that's not new. We were doing that before the pandemic, and it's happening everywhere. It's not just uh, a feature of um, fragile or conflict context. Um, it's something that we can see in Kenya and Myanmar, in Lebanon, in the USA. Um, it's something that, that, is, uh, that is quite prevalent. I think what's new is that the pandemic is providing fuel to further polarize uh, conversations online. Misinformation about the pandemic is rife. There's, uh, there's actually a WHO um, initiative to try and, and address this, as well as a number of other initiatives. Um, and also this misinformation is being used to exacerbate existing conflict divisions. Um, there's so many examples that I, I'm just going to mention three um, so you get a sense. Um, so in northern Nigeria, there was an instance of misinformation circulating uh, that was saying that Muslims were not affected by COVID because, uh, because, it, was a, um, because it was a punishment for non-Muslims. Um, in India, um, the virus was depicted in a number of media uh, in Muslim clothing. Um, and uh, in Hungary, um, Viktor Orban was blaming immigrants for, for um, the arrival of COVID in the country. Uh, I could go on, There's, there are many instances of this. The other thing that's new um, and that conflates further this issue of polarizing conversations is that so much more of our life has moved online um, with social distancing in place. More of our conversations are happening online. Um, in fact, um, companies are reporting a 12 to 15% increase in internet use um, across a number of different contexts. Um, and much of that time is spent in poorly regulated inter internet forums, including on social media. Um, in general, we've seen um, a large uptick in forums that are in, in the use of forums that are promoting extremist views. So with these two things together, um, we're expecting a, a, a rise in polarization online and we're expecting it to get worse, both because the pandemic is, is fueling polarization with the, the, the spread of misinformation but also by the sheer volume of conversations that are happening online. So that's one emergent challenge to peace from, for, from the pandemic um, that is related to digital technologies. The other one that we've been watching is the growth of online surveillance. Um, I have to say that I, I almost have more, more questions than I have answers about this one. It's something that we're still trying to figure out. Um, there's two aspects um, that we're looking at quite closely. One is, um, as, as you all know, um, location data is being used as a way 
um, of supporting um, uh, the control of the pandemic. Um, and, and that's very effective um, as a way of, of, uh, of, of controlling um, outbreaks. But there's a question about what happens uh, to the use of location data after the pandemic. Um, there are a number of concerns and two places where we've been looking uh, into the concerns on this are in Israel and in South Africa, um, where increased use of location data could actually end up fueling more uh, division. The second one um, is the conflation of contact tracing and policing. Um, there's, a, there's some really um, great research that is ha happening on trying to se separate these two things. So contract tracing is in incredibly important for control of the pandemic. Um, but uh, to do that, to use that kind of technique um, in policing is, is quite problematic uh, when it comes to, to civil rights. Um, and this is something that uh, police departments in the, in the United States and in the United Kingdom, for example, um, have, st have started to say, they started to say we're doing contact tracing um, as it relates to policing matters, not to pandemic matters. Um, so, as I say, I have more questions than answers about that aspect. I think what's clear to me is that surveillance is being deployed at a frightening speed um, and without that much thought for the long term. Um, so what's necessary and proportionate in the short term in order to control the pandemic may not be in the long term. Um, it seems to me that there's, there's a threat to digital rights inherent in the way that online surveillance is being deployed and that we really need to pay attention to the conflict dynamics that that introduces. So even if this seems like it's speculative, uh, if in the end the short-term measures get rolled back, then of course, uh, you know, no problem with all of these things that I've just said. Um, but I think just the fact that there is speculation about what will happen in the long term with online surveillance is an evidence of the growing lack of trust in, in governments. Um, so I think if I had to bring these two things to, together and in an attempt to be, to be a bit more global, since that was the framing of the two speakers as well, so to go from the grassroots to, to something a bit more global, I think um, digital technologies were already having an effect on how identities are shaped um, and, uh, and there was already a use of surveillance. Um, and these were already expressing and sustaining socioeconomic inequalities across many countries. Uh, my feeling is that the pandemic and the additional issues that come with the pandemic are amplifying these inequities. So the externalities that are associated with the pandemic, such as misinformation, and then the associated response, which is the increase in surveillance, uh, are likely to have a long-lasting effect on, on trust. Um, and of course, trust is critical to the response to the pandemic, um, and it's critical to the response to conflict. Both require community networks of trust and trust in government. Um, so with that framing and what we're seeing in, in a lot of the grassroots activities that, that, we, that we support, the question that we're asking ourselves at Build Up is what can be done to rebuild trust? Um, and in our particular realm of expertise, our focus is on rebuilding trust online. Um, so we're basically doing this with, uh, with two kinds of peace building interventions, which I won't go into in any detail, but just to mention them. Um, the first is that we want to ensure that consultations related to conflict issues don't disappear because they can't be done face to face. And that when they are done virtually, they're done in a way that is meaningful. Um, so one example is that um, we uh, recently adapted a consultation in Burkina Faso that was supposed to be a two-day face-to-face workshop into a 10-day um, broad-based national consultation over WhatsApp. And we did that in a way that was very interactive, that allowed for feedback to be provided to participants later, um, and that I think really rendered it meaningful. Um, the second area, which I think is probably the one where, where most attention is, is required, is, is really to think about how we can intervene directly 
in online conversations to depolarize them. We had already done some work pre-pandemic in this area at BuildUp. Um, we were running um, a large intervention in the United States uh, where we were intervening in polarized, politically polarized conversations um, on Facebook and Twitter. Um, and we're now seeing a greater need for that kind of work, uh, certainly in the USA where we'll continue working, but we've also started doing a piece of work in Western Kenya um, that uses the same kind of methodology. Um, and the methodology is essentially to watch how online conversations are unfolding and how polarization is manifesting and to train um, online dialogue facilitators to intervene directly in those conversations and try to shift them. So just some thoughts um, from the perspective of uh, digital tech and a bit more uh, grassroots. And I hope that was interesting contribution to the conversation. Definitely. Thank you very much, Elena. I mean, I, I, I think we want to come back to the whole issue of, of trust and, and confidence building. But let me just ask you before um, we do, I do that um, about what you're saying in terms of, um, if I understood you, that there needs to be some kind of regulation and or intervention to limit the, the downside risks of you know the risk to human rights from increasing um surveillance and, and digital action so maybe that should be on on the agenda of the the un or the g20 if you know we ever get them to meet but my question was has that train already left the station because clearly, um, however um, malfunctioning um, these kind of surveillance and app systems are, and in the UK there's a lot of controversy around it, and I'm sure in other countries, from just an effectiveness point of view, um, is it now too late to try and row back and, and, and intervene or, or regulate? I, I, don't, I don't think so. Um, uh, a lot of the, I mean, it depends, it's very much a country by country issue because different countries have introduced different um, uh, measures. But in most places, um, the, the measures that give, so mostly it's in terms of location data, for example, it's mostly been governments requesting access to certain data from commercial companies or from mobile phone companies, so they have access to, to location data. Um, and they've done that typically under emergency powers. So I'm thinking, for example, of, of South Africa, um, and I think that the same is true of, of Israel. So I think the question is just um, to monitor in some way that that really is just used for the emergency um, and that it gets rolled back afterwards and that it remains within, so that it remains at the aggregate so that there isn't a, a, a danger to, to, uh, to individual uh, privacy. So I don't, I think it's, I think the train has left the station in the sense that um, uh, a lot of governments do in fact have access to location data now, um, but there was a pressing reason why that was, that was needed. And I think the question now is how do we legislate in the long term to ensure that that doesn't creep um, uh, into, into, into the longer term and, and, and have an effect on, on digital rights. Thank you. Um, can I um come back then to this issue of, of trust um, and maybe ask you, Helen, um, how do we begin, where do we begin to, um, to rebuild trust given that I think in a lot of countries, um, a lot of regions that is being undermined, maybe you can tell us some other examples, maybe New Zealand, for example, is, is actually different on that score, but how important is it and, and what do we do to, to improve it, to restore it? Yes, I'm very interested in the points that uh, Helen has made because I think 
the extent to which New Zealand has had a, a relatively successful response to COVID-19, uh, the, the responsibility lies in a sense with the public uh, trusting uh, the advice it was given. Uh, the government did, of course, take emergency powers. You know, we, we have uh, legislation under the Health Act we can invoke, and we, we did in our lockdowns uh, have the means to enforce it. But that would have caused a riot if people hadn't got the point, hadn't been transparently communicated with, understood the reasons for it and said, yep, we'll put up with that because we think, you know, this could work if we all pull together. So actually, our relative success in eliminating community transmission uh, was not because we had repressive and enforcement powers and got better at testing and tracing. It, it, it was full community cooperation. Now, uh, I, I mentioned that you know, a number of repressive societies have taken the opportunity to become more repressive uh, with the, the tools that the response to the pandemic provides. I think there are small democratic societies like mine that can offer you know, other models of how to deal with these things. For example, while the New Zealand Parliament stopped uh, sitting in plenary session, it didn't stop its business with committees and it set up a special epidemic response committee, which was chaired by the leader of the opposition, which met three or four days a week, summoned witnesses all day. It was all out there. The epidemiologists were debating the response. People were debating whether the health department was right to stop this or that. And what have the police done here? It's all out there. The media is fully engaged. The public's engaged. Uh, every day, the prime minister and the director general of health would give their 1 p.m. briefing. People are glued to that. So it became a whole kind of national effort. And everyone knew there's nothing to hide here. You know, people were making an honest effort to, to try and get on top of this thing. Uh, so you, know, you, you can approach a pandemic and what has to be done in a democratic way, which keeps accountabilities uh, and builds trust that, you know, we're all in this, this together. Sadly, I've seen other responses which have just relied on a crackdown. I, I saw another uh, news headline come across my screen tonight, just as I was preparing for you, another whistleblower in China detained. I mean, th this is not the way uh, to get your, your public believing that, that you're working in their interests if, if whistleblowers and, and those who criticize a response are to be put away and, and to lose their voice. So I think there's very real issues here. Um, and of course, you know, in, in, in conflict affected countries where we've got fragile go and governance deficits anyway, you're already working from a position where there is that, that sort of disconnect between sort of national policy and, and how people are actually experience everyday conflict. So um, the, the, the mountain is that much diff more difficult to climb, I guess. Yes, and, and can I perhaps say a word here from uh, the experience I had as, as UNDP administrator when Ebola uh, so terribly impacted uh, three West African countries, which also had a, a history of, of, uh, of, of fragility, uh, of, of dictatorship, of, in two cases, outright and protracted uh, civil war. And initially, when authorities uh, tried to deal with Ebola, there was no trust from the citizens. This was a very, very significant obstacle uh, to dealing 
uh, with Ebola and with the consequence, and there will be many examples, but one was where the, the people in moon suits came in to take bodies of people who had died with Ebola and bury them. The minute they'd gone, Mendy went and dug up the corpse because they didn't trust any of this. Mm -hmm. So uh, what I saw uh, happen there was that the tide was turned actually when communities became engaged in the response. And uh, I visited myself uh, uh, all three countries uh, as we were starting to think about how to come out of this after the sort of peak of the epidemic was gone. And I got full briefings. And what I saw the UN agencies do there, working with the governments and communities, was repurpose activities. So if, for example, as UNDP had in, in Guinea-Conakry, in the capital, you had an initiative which was working to try to get the police to work more as community policing uh, rather than as a you know, sort of heavy-fisted gendarmerie, uh, and to get the, the, the public then to come halfway and say, well, yeah, actually, we should work with them to you know, keep our communities safe. That was all repurposed around building uh, trust in, in the Ebola response. If, if there was work with youth, that was repurposed to make... Uh, uh, youth, the community mobilizers to be part of the tracing system in, in the community. And a lot of people stood very tall with, with, with these kinds of, of experiences of being able to be engaged. That was the turning point. Communities, uh, peer educators, peer mobilization. Um, and I, I have enormous faith in communities if they're included, are able to be part of the design of, of what's happening and can help drive the response. Yeah, no, I, I would totally agree with that. I think that's a lesson that we could definitely take from Ebola, that kind of bottom-up approach. I think one of the other things I uh, struck me looking at uh, the Ebola situation, but also now and perhaps responding to some of the points that Helena and, and all of you have been making, are we, are we seeing, should we be more open to new or let's say different actors? This is not just about conversations between uh, global institutions, public institutions or governments uh, and people that A, we need a kind of systemic approach that allows uh, all voices to be heard, but also, I mean, the kind of work I do also looks at whether there's a role for the, the private sector in, in these kind of conversations and rebuilding um, rebuilding economies, but also rebuilding trust where there's a, a deficit of trust between government and people. And certainly, I guess, in, in the case of your work, Helena, you know, you're dealing with large tech companies as well. They've got to be part of that, that conversation, haven't they? Yeah, I, I do think that they need to be part of that conversation. I, I don't know... I mean, I think they are part of that conversation, right? So there has been a, a response from, from large tech companies already, uh, both on the issues of, of misinformation um, on, uh, on their platforms and on the issue, and there's starting to be more of, a, of, a, of an emphasis on the issue of polarization um, on the platforms as well. Um, so that's certainly, I think, something that's, uh, that's there. Um, Mary, could I take the chance to, re to react to something that, that was being said earlier about uh, fragile contexts? Would that be okay? Sure, sure. Yeah, I just think I think it's really interesting because when I when I look at certainly the places where we're doing work, um, it strikes me that the United States is very fragile right now, 
And it's not the kind of place that we normally speak of when we say fragile and conflict affected contexts. Mm. Um, and I think the fragility in the US, um, there was a question that I saw from, from the audience that, that, um, that asks specifically about how we're thinking um, about constructively dealing with the impact of the pandemic on people of color. Um, mm. And I think the case of the United States is, is very interesting because it, it, it's at the confluence of that question, the issue of what fragility means and the issue of trust. One of the main issues that is emerging in, in the United States and is so clear is, is the lack of, of trust in government uh, from people of color because the pandemic is, has um, exacerbated structural inequalities um, and brought them to the fore much more, as well as, of course, all the other events that have been happening. Mm. Um, so I just wonder whether there's something here about um, how do we think about fragility within countries? Um, and not just about fragile countries, um, as if that was a, a separate thing. Um, there's an immense amount of fragility within countries, and a lot of that has to do with structural issues around um, race and gender. Um, and I think that's something that, that maybe, you know, it, it, it related to what Marika was saying, needs to be reframed as well a little bit as we think about the, the response to the pandemic. Yeah, I think it's it's always good to to rethink our categories, isn't it? Um, uh, that that's what sort of we take so so blindly. Marika, I mean, uh, you know, what's your take on on the trust point? And also, um, actually, Elena was referring to a question that's come from Salvia Kasana, who's an LSE visitor from India, and she's making the point about um, the impact, how we're we dealing with the impact on people of color. But she also asked a question, which is maybe for you, about what does a, a, a radical shakeup look like? Um, uh, on the one hand, you know, how, I guess, how bold can we be? And um, the danger, perhaps, that with the disruption in international law, will we lose all the progress we have made? So I don't know if you want to tackle those points. Oh yes, I do like a radical shakeup. <laughs> so thank you for that question. I wanted to come back to the point on trust because We've grappled with trust in many, many different ways. And it links also to um, what Helena just referred to as fragility within countries. I guess we think about it slightly differently, which is along which lines is trust negotiated? And I think that will become a really, really crucial perspective. So in, in the SLRC work, in a way that the SLRC's raison d'etre once upon a time was that there was the idea that if a government just provided good services, it would increase its legitimacy. It's almost like, the notion that if you can, you can just buy legitimacy, and I would say, you know, for argument's sake, that is very similar to trust. And then we found that that wasn't the case. So then, of course, that poses the interesting question, well, well then what? Along the lines of what is legitimacy negotiated and trust built? Obviously, some of these are long historical trajectories, but the really interesting finding and the, the latest research on that has just come out, and there was a uh, World Bank blog earlier in the year where this was summarized was that actually it's not so it's not such a clear forward it's not a straightforward transactional exchange but what it can be is that there are certain issues within countries within parts of countries within communities along the lines of which legitimacy is negotiated certain issues that have salience for one reason or another they resonate particularly and it's it's along these issues that governments, states, and the citizens co-create their narratives of legitimacy. This is not a static process. Again, this is not a one-off, you either, either have it or you don't. This is a permanent process of negotiation, and it involves political power shifts, it involves particular triggers, and so on. So a really interesting question would be, 
will the COVID response become one of these salient issues? Or actually, going back to my earlier point that it could also cover up what other salient issues are. Is it more necessary, for example, to take Helena's example, to look at the knock-on effect of online surveillance? These are really important points. The way we understand these, you know, salience is a behavioral concept. What is it that is available to people in, in making an interpretation of the world around them? So I think it's really, really important that we understand that the way we imagine and we make sense of all these interactions lies in the ways human um, experience their surroundings. But the radical shakeup, I think, really speaks to this. Because I think it is fair to say that in the international responses, in dealing with fragile contexts, trust and collaboration have not been very high on the agenda. On the contrary, I'm being a little bit broad brushed here, but I think it is fair to say that actually international engagement in fragile states has been marked from with a very top down approach. It hasn't created a, you know, what what's um, imagined as country platforms where governments and international actors and maybe other actors as well work together to understand what is a locally appropriate response to also understand that this needs to be permanently looked at. This is again not a one off and it is very transaction heavy and it means that you need to adjust. But if anything, I think the current situation has shown how quickly it is actually possible to adjust responses for better or for worse. And it has also shown that unless these genuine exchanges are, you know, these, these moments of collaboration, coordination and cooperation are somehow institutionalized in better ways, they will be fleeting and it will be continue to be a problem. And the trickle down effect for people who are at the very receiving end of fragility and conflict and botched government responses will continue to be dramatic. So I think the radical shape up kind of needs to lie in, in, I guess, the mental models of the international actors that is still quite top down and an approach to trust and collaboration that we don't see very often in these exchanges. Can I, um, can I ask perhaps all of you um, this issue of intervention, because as you've alluded to, Marika, that's, that's the kind of has been the go to tool of the of the global um, system for dealing with um, problems in, in um, fragile and conflict states. Um, and Helena mentioned it in a different sense, you know, in terms of intervention with uh, with tech companies. Um, Helen, perhaps start with you. How do you see um, intervention, quote unquote, as it were, um, as, as a tool going forward? Is this outdated or at least should it be, can it still be multilateral in, in the current state of the global order? <laughs> um, increasingly outdated, I think. Uh, I think we, we need to, uh, be looking at how we can work with those who you know, have a vision of the future for their country, which would enable, broadly speaking, the global agenda that we have, which has been pretty sidelined at the moment, but it is the sustainable development agenda to be achieved. You know, in every country, everywhere, in every community, you'll find people who want to get on and have a good stab at doing that. And I think empowering civil society, supporting parliamentarians, uh, supporting free media, uh, supporting enlightened officials with ideas, ministers who are reform elements. You know, reform and change has to come from within. It can never succeed from outside. It can't be imposed. People 
have to develop their own ways and models in their own context. So uh, the thinking laterally, I think that's the way uh, I, I would approach it. But I think Helena was right to put on the table the issue of what is a fragile state these days and to raise the fragility of the United States of America. Who, who would have thought we would be talking about this in, in, in 2020? But uh, a crisis does expose all known uh, vulnerabilities and cleavages in a society. And uh, in many ways, the US has never come uh, to terms with its past. It's, it's land grabbed from indigenous people. It's, it's history of slavery. Never been an apology for that, for, uh, to the best of, of my knowledge, nor for that matter from the United Kingdom or others who, who were slave trading uh, nations. Now, I, I come from a country where Europeans also marched in and took a lot of land. And for the last 40 years, we've had long-running truth and reconciliation processes where we do apologize, we do make amends, reparations are paid, uh, you know, restoration of dignity is uh, a, a key objective of, of settlements. You know, we work very hard at these things. Uh, so there are ways to mediate through, but I see you know, a number of the world's great and powerful countries with these painful legacies, which have not been uh, effectively addressed. I think therefore, in the US right now, you have the, the perfect storm. You have a narcissistic president who, who uh, revels in, in division, division with uh, other countries, uh, division internally, uh, you know, works off his base, no matter what the, the cost to cohesion in, in the society. Uh, combine that with a botched COVID-19 response, and then with uh, uh, yet another in the long and tragic history of police killings of, of African-Americans, and you have the single spark that lit the prairie fire. And I think you know, the institutions of the, of the Republic are under huge stress right now. The saving grace, there is a free opposition, there is a free media, there is civil society, but there's a lot to work through. Um, the question also on that theme, I guess, um, for Helen and, and uh, anybody else um, that wants to comment, um, if we look at the institutions themselves, multilateral institutions, how, how can we reinvigorate um, that kind of multilateral co cooperation? I mean, you started uh, out by saying, Helen, that, you know, we needed kind of meetings of the G20 or the, the financial institutions, but um, it doesn't look like an imminent prospect, does it? Where is the kind of leadership going to come on, on reinvigorating that multilateral um, response? Mm. Well, I think uh, that for the G20, uh, it is unfortunate that this year the presidency lies uh, with Saudi Arabia. Uh, I think if this year's presidency had been with, say, France or Germany, you would have seen a willingness to rally nations. And I you know, would still have some hope that uh, the leaders of those two countries who, you know, who do have good international standing might yet you know, spearhead a move in G20 to say, we, we can't let economy after economy go over the cliff with all the, the consequences that that entails. But it needs someone to step forward as Gordon Brown did in 2009 to, uh, to rally uh, the troops. Uh, with respect to uh, the Security Council, it, it, it's, it's pretty dire. I mean, you know, the world's best diplomats are, uh, are at it, but 
You know, we, we have President Trump again today who's used what the Financial Times has uh, described as a racist term in uh, describing uh, the, the, the virus. I mean, this is not conducive to getting any understanding of the Security Council. So I'm, I'm rather inclined to think that the leaders of the international institutions should actually stand as a quartet, as I suggested, take the initiative, use their convening power across the four of them, come up with a plan. <laughs> There's no plan at the moment that, that is covering all the dimensions of, of the crisis. They, they have plenty of experts to draw on. I think they now need to articulate from their peak positions what their ask of the international community is and really stare it down. We need you, G20 leaders, 85% of the global GDP. We need you to back the extra special drawing rights uh, from, from, from the international financial institutions. We need you uh, to be underwriting the debt waivers. We need your companies, your, your banks that are financing to come to the, the party on this. We need your development assistance to be expanding fiscal space for uh, low and middle income countries. So what, what we need is leadership. And my appeal would be to the leaders of the multilateral institutions to stand up and be counted and, and show the way because the member states are in a sense also preoccupied with their own uh, state of pandemic, but they're not stepping forward to take global leadership. Mm. Um, Mary, could I, could I do a pincer on what Helen just said. So she just made uh, this inspiring appeal for multilateral leadership, which I fully agree with. And I do think that there's a dearth of leadership right now, or at least of international leadership at the national level. But because I'm so close to the ground and to civil society organizations, I wonder whether the other pincer is that there really needs to be a stepping up of civil society focusing on this issue of rebuilding trust a rebuilding trust in democratic institutions, a rebuilding trust in, in each other. Um, and there's such an opportunity for that because there has been such an incredible number of community uh, responses uh, to, to the pandemic, right? So I spoke about the threats and the risks, but there's also been such an incredible response. Mm. And I think that that would be actually very supportive of the kind of international leadership that, uh, that Helen uh, just spoke about um, and perhaps the necessary complement to it. And maybe yeah. if, if I can add something to that as well, I, I would agree. And I would also want to add to Helen's plea, and yes, the country's pleading, please, can we have a voice in this? Because that is what we haven't seen, right? We don't see this coordination in, in genuine ways. The other thing that we find in our work, which we call the, the mental landscape of post-conflict lives, which kind of tries to capture what is it that makes coming out of a crisis, coming out of fragility really hard. What is it about this specific quality that I mentioned? And one thing that is a very strong finding and that will probably not surprise any of you is that broken promises have very, very long histories. So a continued cycle that you can see on, you know, sometimes very high level global interventions, sometimes very localized NGO programs that come in that promise a particular pay off at some point if people get involved. The continuous cycle of this at the end creates a, a legacy of broken promises that means that every next time people withdraw a little bit more. And this links in a very interesting way to risks because any kind of coming out of a crisis, any kind of development going forward requires some sort of risk taking. It requires some sort of belief that you think there is a better future and 
I can do something today to achieve a better future. And one of our striking behavioral findings is that people who come out of conflict seem to delay decision makings much into the future. So they, they repeatedly say, well, there's nothing I will do today, but maybe later I can do it. Of course, once you have one year, two years, one generation saying, maybe I'll send my kids to school next year, you have a really dramatic knock-on effect. And again, we find this is a, a specific quality to environments that have come out of conflict, that this idea of, of simply not taking the risk to get involved with yet another NGO program, yet another entrepreneurship support that, that um, promises financial security, and simply to sit and wait is actually kind of a very rationalized way of approaching these really unstable, fragile situations. But of course, the long-term knock-on effect is really dramatic. And I think we can actually extrapolate this to other levels of what happens, right? And why every next cycle will be so much more difficult. And again, if, if not now, then when, it's really important to break that cycle and to make some of these promises of genuine collaboration real. Yeah. Um, Marika, who or, or where do you think legitimacy resides at the moment in 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 some of these responses to COVID? So that's very kind of sweeping. I'm throwing you a curveball as well. But is there? Um, I think Helena, or you made the point that a lot is going on in in communities, um, and and we've seen that before. Again, going back to Ebola, as Helen said, I think that was a critical factor there that the communities got mobilised. But where do you see legitimacy sitting at the moment? That's a, that is a really, really tricky question because mm -hmm. in a way my point, and it sounds like a cop-out answer, but I am a researcher. So research is needed to answer this question is a good answer. But you know, more seriously, I guess the point that I'm trying to make is that the effort needs to be expanded to say we need to understand exactly the question that you just asked. What are specific sources of legitimacy? What are, for example, situations where people who have not had trust in their government, but in a current crisis in an emergent situation kind of forego this? Um, and maybe some of the kind of surveillance issues that Helena talked about creates uh, are such situations. But then the knock-on effect of that is unclear. So I don't know whether I have a straightforward answer. I don't have a straightforward answer to say this is the one source of legitimacy. But in a way, if we take my framework the whole way to say this is a situation in which full rethinking is needed, then it is a good moment to say we cannot be guided simply by our emergency understanding of where legitimacy rises, uh, rests, because then the knock-on effects later on would probably be that there is more tension that comes from this. Because every single time when these kind of issues are negotiated, political power shifts, right? Interest groups mm -hmm. rally. There's a, a whole lot of movement behind this. Political settlements get rearranged. Some are in, some are out. Um, so to simply take a snapshot of that and say, where is it right now is really, I think, a dangerous undertaking because it is in the nature of international responses that snapshots, if they sound good, become the truth for a very, very long time. Mm. And that goes against the spirit that I, you mentioned actually in your opening remarks, which I think is really crucial to say things need to be adaptive. If we all know we need to keep learning all the time, but the whole point of keeping learning is that you then need to adjust your actions based on this learning. And so I would try to move away from these snapshot moments, but I think they will become crucial. The, the question of legitimacy and trust in government, I think will become very acute very quickly if and when a COVID vaccine is found. At the moment, there's kind of this unspoken assumption that everyone will just be happily vaccinated 
you know, save maybe a few groups that have been traditionally against vaccination. But I would argue that we have no way of knowing whether this will be the case and that actually a knock-on effect of the pandemic response will be very different ways of people's trust in government emerging. And some people might extremely mistrust a vaccination suggestion from a government that hasn't been seen to be taking very good care of them. So I think that's, that's the next scenario in which this will play out. Thank you. I'm getting a lot of um, good questions coming in, so I'm going to field a, a few of them to you. Um, I think Chris Langdon, um, question to Helena, but all of you, how do you envisage civil society stepping up on rebuilding trust, as you've outlined? How could it happen? Any, any thoughts? Um, I think there are so many ways in which it could happen um, that I'm just going to start with the one I know best. I think there's a lot that civil society can done to tackle misinformation very effectively um, and to address the polarization of narratives online. Um, and I think that particularly in situations where um, governments are either overwhelmed with the response or um, there just isn't um, a full trust in government, civil society uh, responses that, that use um, digital platforms to, to share accurate and verified information and to intervene in conversations that are becoming polarized can be incredibly impactful. Um, there's actually quite a lot of work happening already in these settings, and in, include, including in very conflict-affected contexts where governments don't have the ability to re reach communities that most need um, uh, information about the, about the pandemic, which has been a huge issue. Um, but civil society networks have um, a much greater reach and, and, and much greater trust in many situations. Um, so I think that's something that that definitely um, civil society could could do, and it also speaks to to this point of you know external interventions or international interventions are are just not it's it's not going to be enough. It's not going to be sufficient, and it's also a lot of international interventions are still based on a model of international development that we know is slowly going away. Um, and so I think that kind of um, supporting, providing resources, and grassroots interventions to spread information is is a is one, one place where we could start. Um, Mary, just a, perhaps a practical suggestion here. I've become increasingly interested in a number of the sort of parallel multilateral gatherings, if you like, which see uh, government and civil society and sometimes private sector come together. One I chair is the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative Board, and that has civil society, governments and uh, industry sitting at, at the table. And it, and it is about transparency and openness and citizens not being robbed of their birthright by corruption in the extractive sector and so on. But uh, in the particular way you framed this question, uh, let me also put on my hat as a, as a global ambassador for the Open Government Partnership, which uh, does have 75 member countries of, of all kinds uh, of you know, layers of, of, of income. And uh, to go into that partnership, you have to have a government that is prepared to say, yes, we recognize civil society as a full partner and we will have a national action plan and we will work together on that, on what are the issues we are identifying as, as critical to having a transparency, open government, full citizen engagement and so on. So I think that for the Open Government Partnership, it, it might be uh, also time, and I'm sure they are thinking along these lines, of how do we 
what do we take from the COVID experience? What did it tell us about the, the need for, you know, working relationships, interaction between civil society and, and the state? So that, I just make that as a practical suggestion because you know, around 40% of the UN's member states are signed up to uh, open government partnership. Mm. Well, thank you. We've also had a question which um, I would put to you, Helen, um, a different sort of uh, coming at this from a different angle, we talked about civil society, but Laura Pujes, if I pronounce that right, Laura, um, who's an LSE alum, what do you think the role of business should be as we move through and past this pandemic? So with your uh, EITI hat on, Helen, do you think there's also a constructive role that the private sector can play, um, not least in, in this kind of trust conundrum and rebuilding confidence? Oh, definitely, and and in, in at many levels actually. But but let's start with, for example, those food processing companies which have kept going without particular protection for their workforces. Again, I've seen another news item flash over the screen tonight. Yet another large factory where workers have been falling like ninepins to COVID nineteen. This is these are tragic stories. This is not responsible employment practice to expose workers to that. We need our essential industries going. You know, if there's one thing that had to operate uh, through the crisis, it, it was the food industry. Uh, but to expose the workers uh, to such risk is, is, is reprehensible. So, you know, you know, physician heal thyself with respect to the, the business community. If you want a voice, you know, walk the talk. Uh, but uh, look, on the other hand, many, many in the private sector have been tremendously helpful as well. The innovation of the private sector and, you know, supporting us to find more new ways to carry on our business in times like this. I mean, how many people had ever had a Zoom conference before this happened? You know, the, the explosion of ways of, of connecting uh, in, in, in that world that Helena is, is very familiar with, the, the technology uh, world, uh, you know, the, Obviously, there'll be a private sector role in, in bringing a vaccine if we, if we can develop one to, uh, to market. But, but then uh, I think the plea from many, including me, having put my name to the people's vaccine call, is for big pharma not to try to rip off the world's governments and taxpayers uh, by selling this thing at a high profit. We need now uh, companies and the researchers motivated by the ethos of Dr. Salk, who, who produced the vaccine that enabled us to move towards polio eradication. He said, I don't want to make a cent out of this. I want to help humanity eradicate uh, this, this disease. So I think business can think on many levels about it, it, its business model, how it contributes to innovation, which will help our societies become more inclusive, sustainable, resilient, all of those things. The global compact uh, the, the, the UN operates with, with business uh, clearly has a, a role to play. And uh, there will be many who step up, but there are many who are not walking the talk at the moment. Um, Marika, perhaps we can triangulate this with you because there's a question from Aniban. I'm not going to try and pronounce your surname, Aniban, because I will mangle it. But will he asks, will the nation state still remain the primary or the sovereign locus of curating the response to global challenges, I suppose, you know, COVID not least. How do you see that? Where does the locus of, um, of, of responsibility also, we haven't talked so much about responsibility um, as a concept, how do you see it? 
Yeah, interesting, right? Because we, we talk about these responses in nation states, which we, which are in a way kind of, to many people living in them, quite imaginary. So, you know, we know that for someone who lives in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the notion of a state as someone who provides services and offers protections is pretty vague, if existent at all. So I think what's been really quite jarring and maybe confusing, and again, it speaks to the, to the nature of a fragile environment for many people, is that all of a sudden nation states have become so visible and all of a sudden mm -hmm. governments have national responses or other governments who are very reluctant to spend before are now spending, depends on where in the world you look. So I think this is already, again, something that needs consideration that this idea of now working through governments is great if you under but only, it will only work if you understand that many governments do not have reach into their state territories as such so i guess it takes you back to the question you asked me before and where legitimacy now rests at the moment and you mentioned the word responsibility and i guess in many ways that's for me a more useful concept um, the flip side of responsibility is accountability so if you have a, an, a state where the reach is very very unclear it's probably very centralized it's, the state might be very visible in the capital city and then it gets increasingly less visible um, the further away you get. The responsibilities of the state have not been fulfilled there for a long time, if ever. That might not change right now, but what could change right now with a rethinking is this idea of accountability. And again, if we take an example of what might happen with, with vaccinations and trust in government, there's really interesting examples of something called opportunistic accountability, where a population realized that it was all of a sudden very much in the government's interests that they would do something for the government and being vaccinated against a different disease was understood to be doing something for the government because it was a request that came from the government. And so they said, okay, we understand you want something from us, but in return, we will do this, but we really need a road. So how about a road building in exchange for us getting vaccinated? And you can see how this might actually become a relationship that is an interesting version of this, this co-creation that I, that I mentioned before, right? This, this opportunistic accountability, but then actually that morphs into mutual accountability. And I think this idea of mutual accountability is a really strong framework that could help with un imagining and then putting into practice an international response, really exactly who's accountable to whom and what are the conditions under this accountability, under which this accountability happens and what role do citizens play in this? What is citizens' engagement needs to look like? How does it need to be supported for these accountability structures to emerge? I completely appreciate that none of these are things that will happen in kind of pandemic emergency response style. I think some of these things will happen in parallel, but it would be really tragic if they didn't happen at all. If we didn't take this moment to say, actually there are accountability relationships here that that kind of transcend this notion of what a government um, of a kind of nation state needs to be like. Um, thank you. I've got um, there's two points in, in the sort of last few minutes of this. I'm, I'm slightly condensing, but one dimension that perhaps we haven't um, addressed directly, uh, but has come up in, in a few of the questions is the kind of regional dimension um, and there's a question certainly to you, Marika, sitting with you not in Nairobi at the moment. You should be in Nairobi, I know. Um, but a question um, about a the impact of COVID on on say African countries, but also an interesting point from Mashinga, so Yuba Combo asking um, 
how um, do you think countries like Kenya, Zambia, South Africa, how could they have an active voice if we if we don't want yet another external intervention, um, as we've already um, uh, touched on? How can uh, regions, perhaps, and particularly conflict-affected regions, have a have an active voice? I guess one thing that I found really fascinating when the pandemic started was that, in a way, it shifted the power balances. Um, you know, capitalism, in a way, is designed to create winners and losers. That is that is at the heart of it all. But a pandemic all of a sudden shifted this because all of a sudden, big economically powerful countries could not afford to have other countries not come along on a pandemic response because if the virus is anywhere in the world, it will be everywhere in the world. And so that, I think, again, is an interesting shift. This, this might sound inappropriate, but maybe this is a, a genuine moment of solidarity that uh, we haven't seen like this before. And actually on the second question, how can countries like, I think the question is Kenya, Zambia, South Africa, can, how can they have an active voice in this? I would love to hear Helen's thoughts about this because she sits in these forests. She probably has a much better sense of what, what blocks it. What, what is the obstacle for this active voice? Maybe in the framing that at the moment, this is a situation where truly in UN language, we cannot afford to leave anyone behind. So what can these countries do to have this active voice? Helen, any thoughts on, on, on that particularly? Well, firstly, I, I think um, the world's regional organizations do have a very important role to play in pandemic response. And uh, Africa has the African Union, but uh, it has the sub-regional organizations too. And I think uh, for SADC, for example, in the, the Southern African region, East African community, uh, uh, EGAD, uh, countries in the Horn, ECOWAS, uh, the Central uh, African country uh, grouping again. Uh, when you're dealing with, with COVID and you're dealing with issues of, you know, you know, the borders being a little bit notional in many cases, you, you need to be thinking regional and, and, and cross-border uh, 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 wide. A number of these sub-regions already have quite well-developed um, uh, areas of cooperation and uh, expanding those so they encompass the cooperation needed for COVID. Uh, and then I think, you know, begin to share best practice. In some ways, I, I've been optimistic about uh, the response which might come uh, from a number of states in Africa on COVID because there is recent experience of dealing with Ebola uh, in, in West Africa, uh, Uganda in the past, uh, DRC of course has, has its many complications, but uh, in, in living memory, uh, many African countries have had to fight infectious disease far more than those those in the north have and there was a very interesting uh, commentary i think in, in the lancet early on in the in the pandemic by sarah dalglish who i've worked on uh, on uh, health issues and she wrote who can learn what from whom in response to the pandemic and uh, you know uh, the astonishing thing to me is how major uh, Western countries, in some cases, fluffed it so badly, uh, whereas uh, often in, in East Asia, 
countries dealt with it more effectively and uh, getting on the front foot with the public health responses in a number of African states with infectious disease outbreak experience of more recent times has been quite, quite inspiring too. Uh, so I think if we're talking knowledge sharing, uh, a lot of the North doesn't have a lot to share with the South in effective responses. It can be the other way around. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're sadly running massively out of time, but I couldn't resist just uh, asking all of you a final question that's come in from Michael Bates uh, for some quickfire responses. Um, what are the opportunities for reform and progress within the international community that we could consider in a post-COVID world order that weren't possible in a pre-COVID world? So where, if we can end on, if there are positive notes, things we could do uh, going forward that we couldn't do before. Helena, any quick response to that? Just, just throwing that one at me at the very end. <laughs> yes. uh, you know, kind of building off of what Helen just said, I think it's an opportunity to shift power. I think there's, it's so clear that, um, that the, the best responses to the pandemic haven't coincided with, with what was the traditional leadership in the international community. Mm. Um, one of my team members is Syrian. And he, um, when, when uh, the pandemic started, he, we were on a, on a team call and he said, aha, so the whole world is now Syria. And of course he was exaggerating, but what he was referring to was um, the other side of what Helen is talking about, which is not, not just that governments in, in places, in unexpected places maybe have taken leadership, but also civil society. Like a lot of individuals in, in places that have had fragility for longer are much more used to living with fragility and responding to it and being adaptive than, uh, than perhaps civil society in Europe or in the United States. And so I think there's an opportunity to shift power and for, um, for voice to come from, from different places because there's a lot uh, that can be that can be learned and that can be adapted uh, to different contexts. Sure. Marika, you talked at the beginning about the, it being a transformative moment. So what possibilities are there that maybe didn't exist pre-pandemic? Well, I think one is the lived experience of what Helen had just said and Helen before this, of people who live in countries that weren't previously considered fragile. All of a sudden there's a lived experience of what it means when you cannot rely for your government to provide a service. There might not be a respirator for you because services have been underfunded, but it wasn't visible before. So all of a sudden there's a lived experience of what this feels like. And all of a sudden, I think we can all appreciate maybe much more the need to have hope in a situation because we all need it at the moment, right? So this I think is a is a genuinely interesting shift in how people might understand how some of these crises fall out. Concrete things that can change, I think, well, first of all, there's a really good, this is a good moment to say, why do responses and intervention continue to look in the same, the same way that they always have done? What are these underpinning mental models? That means that the status quo of development seems to shift much, much uh, more slowly than the rest of the world. How can we have genuinely networks of trust, of collaboration, of participatory policy processes where it is actually possible for people who have been asked research questions time and time again for years, for decades, to participate in a policy process? What power can be relinquished in, in a kind of country platform setting that addresses fragility in a completely different way, works with government interests without foregoing that the international community will have, will have their own? be adaptive, learn, adjust, admit mistakes, but do all of this on a basis of a relationship that is really, uh, this is crucial to happen anyway. And now this is a good moment for this to happen. 
And finally, Helen, any any last thoughts on? Uh, you said you're an optimist. <laughs> Where are your brands? <laughs> uh, well, look, I, I I see an opportunity here. This abject failure of the UN Security Council uh, has occurred in the 75th anniversary of the United Nations Charter being agreed, and uh, there is. Uh, uh, if it can get any space in this very crowded now uh, international uh, agenda of dealing with a pandemic, uh, there is an opportunity for UN 75 uh, to trigger uh, a re-examination of the global peace and security mechanism. Uh, now, my rough recollection is that uh, back in 2005, when uh, Kofi Annan encouraged a reflection by member states uh, on the future uh, of the UN and you know, big issues like the Security Council and the veto and so on, that there was supposed to be uh, work on proposals which would lead to an extraordinary General Assembly of the United Nations, in a sense, to revisit the 1945 settlement. And I would hope that, you know, the world's best diplomats and, you know, having been in New York for eight years, there's some incredible diplomats out there always looking for a way forward, mm -hmm. that a way might be found to convene that extraordinary General Assembly. Because if, if the architecture limps on like this, will it see a centennial? The League of Nations collapsed when it failed to prevent a world war. Uh, if, if the UN peace and security mechanisms fail now, in the face of the, the cascading crises that we have, the, the syndemic, the phrase many use, mm. uh, the, this, this is not good. So, you know, wake up call. Uh, if there's a new president in the United States, there just may be the timing uh, to be conducive to, to trying to negotiate some kind of new settlement. So that's where my optimism would lie. Good. Well, always great to leave on an optimistic note, but obviously I think what we've done today is, is constructed a, a large, long to-do list as well at, at, at every level. And um, so just to finish by thanking all of you on the panel um, for your time, but even more your, your insights and thoughts in what is obviously a very broad-ranging subject, but I think we got into some really interesting thematics there. Um, I should also say thanks to our tech team who make all this possible and uh, nothing, nothing collapsed. Uh, thank you in the audience for all your questions. I hope we got to um, a fair few of them. And I think you can see in the, um, in the kind of chat um, box um, or the, the Q&A thing, um, if you want to see more events um, of this kind, not least Helen, who is appearing again on Friday, I think, at an LSE event, so check that one out. Um, there's some incredibly diverse and, and interesting conversations going on, and, and we always want you to be part of that. So thank you to all, and have a good day, good night, good morning, wherever you are, and um, as they say, stay safe.